Okay. Deuteronomy chapter 4. A couple of statements that are made about God. So important. Is that God is described in 424 as a consuming fire. In that context, we are warned against making an image or an idol that represents God. Because there's nothing that we can make to represent God that adequately expresses God in all His glory. So therefore, remember, God says, on the day I appeared to you at Mount Horeb, not only what you saw, but remember what you didn't see. You didn't see any form. You didn't see any image. The purpose was that you might worship me and worship me alone without any idols. So God is revealed as a consuming fire and that is principally a warning in this context against idolatry. But also God is revealed as a compassionate and gracious and merciful God. In verse 31, the Bible says the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you nor destroy you. Nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. God is compassionate and gracious. And in a certain sense, we choose whether we meet God as a consuming fire or we meet him as a compassionate God. But we left off with verse 24 the other day. We want to pick up with verse 25. In verse 25, it is going to set before the people uh, some things that will happen in the future. We, we stated that at the end of Deuteronomy that you have blessings if the people are faithful. You have curses if the people are unfaithful and disobedient. And some of those blessings and curses appear throughout the book before we get to the very end But in verse 25, when you become the father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything or do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. That you shall surely perish quickly from the land which you are going over the Jordan to possess it. You will not live long on it, but shall be utterly destroyed. So, if you're unfaithful, if you act corruptly, if you make an idol, I call heaven and earth to witness. Most treaties in the ancient Near East called the gods of the various nations. God doesn't call the gods because he alone is God. As this chapter will show, God calls heaven and earth to witness. But look at verse 27. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples. You will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord shall drive you. Then you shall serve gods, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither hear, which neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. In verse 27, the Lord will scatter you. This language of God scattering the people is language that is often used of the people going into captivity. 
going into captivity. You see it, for example, that way in Leviticus 26, verse 33. Leviticus 26, verse 33. You see it used that way a couple of times in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy uh, chapter 28... Deuteronomy 28, you see uh, that language used as God is pictured as, as scattering the people among the nations in verse 64. So God says, I will scatter you, the Lord will scatter you if you're unfaithful, if you worship other gods, God will scatter you among the peoples. In a certain sense, captivity, exile is going to be the ultimate curse of the covenant. If the people were taken up, ripped off of their land, and carried back into slavery, God had rescued them from Egyptian slavery, but God will send you back to slavery if you're unfaithful. And interestingly, notice in verse 27, you will be left few in number. Few in number. Now, this book in Deuteronomy 1 use an expression for God multiplying the people of Israel. It is an expression that you're familiar with from the Old Testament. What are a couple of images of God multiplying the people of Israel in the Old Testament? Sands of the sea sea and stars of heaven. And Deuteronomy 1 had particularly used... God multiplying you as the stars of heaven for multitude. Deuteronomy 1 and verse 10. Deuteronomy 1 verse 10. But now in contrast to God multiplying the people, if they are unfaithful, if they are disobedient, God will leave them as few in number. And and the Bible says they will be among the nations. But look at the penalty in verse 28. Uh, when you're in captivity, you're going to worship God's wood and stone, which can't see, uh, can't hear, can't eat, nor smell. Worshiping other gods and making idols was the reason for captivity in verse 25. It was the reason for captivity. And it is also a consequence of captivity of their sin in verse 28. One writer said many years ago that the consequences of sin are sin. Now, that doesn't mean that's the only consequence of sin. But one of the consequences of sin is that we are in situations and circumstances where sin becomes the norm and not the exception. And you're going to be driven to other nations. And in these other nations, you're going to have to worship the work of your hands, the work of man's hands. And these gods don't see, they don't hear, they don't smell, they can't do anything. Now I'll tell you a good footnote to write down beside of verse 28. Psalm 115, verses 3 through 8. 115, verses 3 through 8. Psalm 115, 3 through 8, and 135, verses 15 through 18. And there the Bible says, 
The gods of the nations uh, are idols. They have eyes, but they cannot see, and ears, but they cannot hear, and hands, but they cannot feel. The point is, they can do nothing. They are powerless to do you harm. They are powerless to do you good. And there you're going to worship these powerless gods. But all of this is, in this context, this is an expression of God's compassion. God will bring us to the end of our life. To let us see that He is our only hope. And this is what these verses describe. You sin, you worship other gods, I'm going to drive you off the land, I'm going to scatter you among the nations, you're going to be few in number, you're going to worship the powerless idols. But in verse 29, but from there you will see the Lord your God. And you will find if you search for Him with all your heart and all your soul. God lets us come to the end of our rope so that we might turn to Him. And in captivity, God will bring these people in captivity to the end of their rope that they could seek God and find God. I don't know if you remember King Asa in the land of Judah, uh, but his reign is told in 2 Chronicles 14 through 16. And there are quite a few references in the time of Asa to words like this. This is 2 Chronicles 15 verse 2. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Second Chronicles 15, 2, verse 4. But in their distress, they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and they saw him, and he let them find him. Second Chronicles 15, 15. All Judah rejoiced concerning the oath which he had swore with their whole heart, and had sought him earnestly. And he let them find him. So the Lord gave them rest on every side. So three verses in Second Chronicles 15. It says the people sought God. And God let them find him. I want to tell you something. God is not hiding from us. God's not hiding. If we seek him... We will find him. What he said here about Asa in 2 Chronicles 15 and what he said about Israel in Deuteronomy 4 is said about all people in Acts 17, verses 26 and 27. God appointed, God made all men appoint the boundaries of their habitation, their habitation. If happily they might seek after him and find him. And remember these words. He is not far from each one of us. He's not far from each one of us. Paul's preaching that sermon to a group of idolaters. And he says he's not far from each one of us. You will seek the Lord. You will find Him if you search for Him 
with all your heart and with all your soul. Let's say you just opened up your Bible sometime and you don't know where you are. If you read the phrase with all your heart and all your soul, you're probably in Deuteronomy. You're going to probably be in Deuteronomy. That phrase is going to be used often. And we're going to find the phrase used in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And here the Bible tells us you will find Him if you search for Him. God is not hiding from you. God wants to be found by you. But it will demand a diligent search on our part. Notice that verse 30 said, When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you, in the latter days you will return to the Lord your God and listen to His voice. And then again in verse 31, The Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant which is with, his father, with your fathers which He swore to them. God is compassionate. God wants us to seek Him and find Him. And when in our distress we turn to Him, He is compassionate. He will not fail us. He will not forget us. He will not destroy us, the text is saying. God is holding open His promises and the people's chance to come back to Him. As we have talked about comparisons between Israel's covenant in the Old Testament and the covenants of other peoples in the ancient areas, we've drawn attention mainly to comparisons. But here's a contrast. If you were unfaithful to your covenant to afford you, and that foreign key called you to account. And you were repentant. And you maybe even were sincerely repentant. That king would have no mercy upon you. This king will have mercy upon you. He will punish you for your disobedience. But if under that disobedience you see He is your only hope and you turn to Him with all your heart and soul, He will have compassion. He will be like the father of the prodigal running out to greet you, to receive you, to show mercy to you. Never let anyone refuse to come to God. Because they think God will not receive them. God will receive you. God will receive you. I'm not saying it doesn't demand discipline in our life. It may demand changes in our life. But God will receive you. He is compassionate and gracious and will not fail us, destroy us, or forget our covenant. Now... Turn back with me just a moment to Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26 is a passage in the book of Leviticus that talks about the blessings and curses of the covenant. And as I stated before, 
it shows captivity as being kind of the ultimate curse of the covenant. I already alluded to verse 33 earlier when I said in verse 33, you, however, this is Leviticus 26, 33, you, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you and your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. I will, uh, the text says, I will scatter you among the nations. But look at verse 40. This is what we want to stress. In verse 40, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their unfaithfulness which they have committed against me and in their acting with hostility against me, skip to verse 42, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. And I will remember the land. In verse 45, I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. God will remember. I'll tell you something that hit me today. Make a good lesson sometime. What God remembers and what God doesn't remember. But God says, I will not forget the covenant in Deuteronomy 4.31. And God says he will remember the covenant in Leviticus 26.42 and verse 45. So God will remember his covenant with the people. Now, all of this focuses on who God is and his greatness. Uh, some of the things that we do in teaching the Bible is just kind of to set before you uh, things to help us to see what's already in the text. It's not finding something that's not there. It is hopefully just illuminating and making clearer things that are there. And I want you to notice in chapter 4, in verses 32 through 34... That there are three questions that are asked. And all these questions deal with God's nature. But I want you to notice, first of all, in verse 32. Verse, yes. Before you get to yes. this, I wanted to ask a question about verse 28 real quick. Yes. Um, so we see this comparison between an inanimate false god and then, by implication, the true living God, right? Yep. Is there something in the Greek? Because when I first read this, it struck me interesting. We see, see, hear, smell, which we have all indications, you know, that God sees, he hears, sacrifices go up as a sweet aroma. But then there's this eat. And I'm just wondering if that word eat in the Hebrew really means that in the English? Because we don't, as far as I know, we don't have an indication of doing it in the Bible. That I'm not going to well... There is that language is occasionally it's it's basically the meaning uh, of eat and 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 by the way um, um, I'm, I'm thank you for giving me a chance to show um, how deep I am the word eat means eat you know so I mean hey is that insight or what uh, in the text but the word but it just is the basic word for eat that is used. Um, let me tell you an illustration, though, from the ancient Near East. Um, have, 
you have heard probably, you may not remember this name, but the Gilgamesh epic. The Gilgamesh epic is a story of the flood that comes from another land. And in that story of the flood, after man gets off of the vessel on which he's been spared from the flood, he offers sacrifices. And the gods swarm around those sacrifices like flies because they've been starving to death and they are fed by the sacrifices of the people. I don't know if this is, if there, if that word is used with God, and, and really I do believe there are a couple of times that kind of idea is used about, that's rare, Mike, but there are a couple of times it appears, but it's used just kind of figuratively of the true God, and of false gods, it was used, it was used, and they viewed their gods as being sustained by the food they ate. And listen, that happened even in this building before we owned it. As they believed the gods ate the certain foods they bought for them. So what I would say is this is not something so much that, that is depicted of Israel's God. This is something that they thought of the gods of the nations as doing. And they can't even really do that. Is what it's saying. Now, I want you to notice in verse 32 how extensive this language is. It says in verse 32, it says, Indeed, ask now concerning the former days which were before you since the day God created man on the earth. Now, if I wanted to tell you to make a long search, and I said, go back to the day God created man. How can you go back any further than that? That's as far as you can go back. Go back to the day God created man. And look also at verse 32. And inquire from one end of the heavens to the other. So you go back as far as you can chronologically. And you ask this question as far as you can geographically. From one end of heaven to the other end of heaven. And his three questions, question number one is in verse 32. Question number two is in verse 33. And question number three is in verse 34. And each of this, these questions asks if anyone or any God has done anything like the true God. Has anyone done anything like the true God? In verse 32, has anything been done like this? Or anything been heard like it? Has anything been done comparable to what God has done? Verse, verse 33, a question two. Now that's kind of a generic question in verse 32. But he gets more specific in verse 33. A second question. Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard it and survived? Has any nation in their experience heard 
letting their God speak to them out of the fire. You did it. And you lived through the experience. You survived it. Has any nation got a story like that? Or verse 34. Has a God tried to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, by wars, and by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great terrors as the Lord your God did for you before your eyes? Has any nation done what God did in the land of Egypt where they are slaves in the midst of a more powerful nation and God takes them out of that powerful nation that shows us the incomparable power of God? It shows Shows us the powerlessness of the Egyptians. All of these questions are hitting at the fact that Israel's relation, Israel's God, is incomparable. We see the song, and I may need help with some of the words. Uh, there is none like him, none can compare. No God is equal, no prince is there. I think I did. Get those phrases right. There's no God like our God. And here, Israel, which knew of the existence or, or the claims of existence of all these other gods, among all these other peoples they encountered, they said, does anyone have a God like you have? There's no God like you. You can go throughout this town on any given Sunday and you won't find many worshipers coming together to worship that. Or Margaret. Or any of the other gods of the ancient Near East. But about half the city will gather in some form Worship the God who revealed himself to Israel. Why did he survive when all the rest are forgotten? Because there's no God who revealed himself in the way that he did. He is unique. He is incomparable. Now, the next few verses are going to build on this. The next few verses are going to build on this. But does anyone have a question real fast right there? Okay. Let's keep this idea going. Look at verse 35. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord... He is God. And there is none, no other besides Him. Now verse 39 is going to make the same statement. Know therefore today, and take it to to your heart, that the Lord, He is God in heaven, above, above, on the earth below, and there is none other. Now, let me ask you a question. And I'm asking you to raise your hand if this is present in the Bible you're looking at. Do any of your versions have know that the Lord, He is 
be God. Did any of your versions have that? In both cases, this is what the Hebrew text says in verse 35. In verse 39, He is the God. Now, that definite article there is pretty important. Now, you can still make the point from any translation that only this God is God. Because the, the sentence is in, there's no other besides Him. But these are claiming this God is incomparable and this God is the only God. Now, a statement I like in this regard is made at the end of Deuteronomy. Look at Deuteronomy 32 and verse 39. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 39. See now that I, I am He, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and I, it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. There's no one who can deliver from my hand. God alone is God. God alone is God. And in verse 36, it said, He lets you hear His voice. To discipline you on earth, he let you see his great fire. You heard the words from the midst of the fire. So you, you heard his voice from the fire. You heard his words from the fire. And God was disciplining you through that process. God's revealing of himself at Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai was a discipline, disciplining of them. In verse 37, because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose your descendants after them and personally brought you out from Egypt by his great power, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you into the land to give you for an inheritance as it is today. Why did God deliver them from Egypt? Because He loved them. They said in 127, because He hated them. Four, uh, 437 says, because He loved them. He loved your fathers. He chose them. He brought you out of Egypt and drove out nations greater and stronger than you before you. Um... Any questions right there through verse 39? Sarah? I, I like the, uh, the idea he personally brought you out. I mean, and I yeah. can't help but think of the cloud and that presence hanging out right there the whole time yeah. and, and, and all of that. So it's kind of a... Yes, very good. It's an odd personal touch to say that a cloud is... But he personally brought you out. Exactly. In verse 37, it's like God was their personal escort out of Egypt. God is there. God is guiding them out of Egypt. And because God is God, God is unique. 
We have to listen to him in verse 40. So you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I'm giving you today, that it may go well with you, with your children after you, that you may live long on the land which your Lord God is giving you for all time. Again, any questions? Any ideas there? Listen, Sarah, go ahead. And this just occurred to me, so I may be totally off base again. But if you were to think of God as a man who wanted to rescue someone, the fact that he came in and personally did it meant that he had put himself at risk to do that. With God, there was no risk, but at the same time, that idea of personally taking charge and instead of sending somebody in to take care of it, he's the one who went into the fire to to grab the victim and pull them out to go with my fire department metaphors. Yes. Um, yes, in a certain sense, there was no personal risk to God. Yeah. I think in the full picture of the Bible, we see the risk uh, and how God exposed himself to suffering and pain and sacrifice. So you're right. He, he rescued us at great cost to himself. And I think that's what you were doing up to. Hey, Tommy? Yes. In verse 27, it says the earth would be a witness against the people. How's the earth a witness to the faithfulness of a church? It, yeah, it, it, that, that happens, the idea happens uh, quite a few times. Ryan, you see it, for example, in... Um, Michael 6, verses 1 and 2, as God has covenant with people. God can't call on other gods to witness what He's done. But in a sense, all of creation is pictured as a witness. Obviously, it's personifying creation. It's personifying and giving it human attributes. So it's not completely literal, but it's just a way of saying... All the world sees this. Heaven and earth, all are witnesses of these things. He does it in quite a few passages beside Micah 6, 1 and 2. Uh, what was that? He does something similar whenever the... the Joshua 24. The yeah, yes. Uh, I think, I think yes, you're right. Joshua 24 does it. It will happen also in 30 verse 19. We look at Deuteronomy. Stepping Yes, yes. God, God who created it, but one, I heard one person illustrate it this way. He said he had never bought a new car in life. And he said he bought once a new car, which can be probably not a good financial but okay, okay, let's get back to the same. Okay, back to the same. Um, he bought a new car, but he was determined he was going to make it last as long as possible. And he said, I did something I've never done before. I went in 
So then you say, who knows more about the car than the one who built the car? And if I act in a way consistent with what they say, it's going to last longer. And he said, the car lasted in a couple of decades. It's pretty good for a car. Uh, But I think it's the same kind of point. God made it. He made us. And he's the one who knows how to tell us to to live. And if we live contrary to him, it is just kind of going to inherently bring curses. And we're really consistent with him. It's going to inherently bring blessings. Just about that same point, though, then the car was a witness to the faithfulness of that person. And that was in a literal sense. Yeah. yeah. In, in, a certain, in a certain way. In a certain way. Yes, I can see I can see what you're saying. Yes. This was all that God loved the angels that he promised. Yes, and his, his promises, God is a promise keeping God, and he'll he'll particularly tie that in when we get to do on the because of faithfulness and loyalty uh, to them. I want to kind of Overview the rest of this chapter real quickly. The three cities of refuge are mentioned in verse 43. Uh, again, these are where you could flee if you did not kill, if you killed a person unintentionally. What, what chapter 4 is doing, I think, in chapter 4, verses 44 through 49, is going to go back, they're going to go back and talk about the victories over Sihon and Og. Now, those things kept coming up in this first section. We saw that in 1 verse 4. We saw that in chapter 2 verse 24 to chapter 3 verse 11. The reason these keep coming up is because I think you see here that that's kind of a down payment of all the land of Canaan. This is something that I've experienced already, and it's kind of a down payment with all the land of Canaan. I uh, mentioned Sihon in verse 36, uh, Og in verse 37, and how God has blessed them, and God has given them, God has given them the land. And uh, Tony was saying before class, it may be that chapter 4 is kind of the... Uh, it, it may have been, we're not, it's not stated for certain, um, kind of a, a break because he, stu- he, he leaves these historical remembrances in a way to remind them of their responsibilities as we get into Deuteronomy 5. Um, I want to ask you all about a question as we get to Deuteronomy 5. I, I'm going to ask you particularly what do verses 2 and 3 mean? What do verses 2 and 3 mean? But let's just read the text first of all. He's going to review Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. In verse 1, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the ordinances which I'm speaking today in your hearing, that you may learn them and observe them carefully. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, with all those of us alive here today. And the Lord spoke to you face to face at the mountain from the midst of the fire. While I was standing between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, 
Lord, for they were afraid because of fire, because of the fire, and did not go up to the mountain. He said, and then we'll see the Ten Commandments given. What does it mean in verses 2 and 3 that God made a covenant with your fathers? Not with your fathers, but with you. And, and also we could ask, what does it mean in verse 4 that the Lord spoke face to face? Yeah, I just think that, you know, they have been told time and time again, God made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their fathers. And so it's almost like a, a dissociative kind of a situation here. Like, yeah, but you made that covenant with them. But he's saying, no, I am. I have made this covenant with you. And yeah. it's not, not, not that some other person in your distant past that is special to me. Yeah. I have made it now with you. Yes. It's not so much. And I know this is. Go ahead, Bob. Okay. Okay. So you're taking the fathers in this case to be specifically the disobedient generation before. It may be. I think it is more. I think in this context, a lot of times the Bible makes not only but also statements without saying those words. It's not that it, it's not, this is not so much a denial of a covenant with the fathers as much as it is an emphasis on his covenant with this generation. You know, it's not, not them only. And now what matters as Bob was saying, it's, the, it's your part of it. And, and, as, and as Tony was stressing, and well, it's with you personally. It's, it's a responsibility of, as one writer said, it's a responsibility of every Israelite in every age to identify with this covenant God gave at Mount Sinai. It's... And we have to read the Bible. We could say with this, this wasn't written to the Corinthians. It was written to you. Is that the nine that was written to them? The point is to stress, it is for all people, for instruction at all time. Not so, the point is not so much to deny as to emphasize, hey, you're responsible. Did you have your, okay. And, I mean, that kind of goes along with when you, read about how the Passover is supposed to be celebrated and the youngest says to the father what's going on and the father says this is what the Lord did for me even though that person was not a slave in Egypt ever Um, and the the whole point of Passover is that all the nation participates is in a sense participating in this um what does the statement mean in verse 4 that says at the mountain, the Lord spoke to you face to face? The Lord spoke to you face to face. Did God speak face to face at Mount Sinai? Did they see any form? If we hadn't gotten from chapter 4 that he didn't see a form, I don't know where we would get it from in the Bible. I think this is saying in the closest personal terms that we can relate to that God has an intimate relationship with His people. He's making this covenant with you. He spoke with you face to face. Now we've already seen they saw no, they saw no form of God. 
But He spoke to you directly. He spoke to you personally. It's kind of like Sarah emphasized 427. He personally brought you out of Egypt. But he and, didn't speak to just Moses. He didn't speak just through Moses. He actually did speak himself. Yes, and, and, and all the people heard the voice of God at first. And that's what we will see at the end. They're saying, don't speak to us like this anymore. We can't take it. We can't survive the experience. But notice how frequently, too, Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 5 emphasize that God spoke from the midst of the fire. Now, what Deuteronomy uh, 5 does, and let's uh, test uh, my ability here, and this is going to be quite a test. Uh, 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 let's see. Um, but. In Deuteronomy 5, verses... No, 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 please. But, but I'm kind of surprised myself. Okay. But, <laughs> Deuteronomy 5, verses 6 to 21, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. And this goes, the language is going to be very similar to Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. Most of this we're going to have to try to do Sunday, but we're going to try to get through this quickly. I want you to look at this. I want you to look at the list here of commandments in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 5 and the list in Exodus 20. Where uh, do they differ? There, There are several small points where they differ. Several small points where they differ, but there's pretty one pretty significant point that the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 differ from the Ten Commandments here. So, so, so ask that question. But this whole experience in verses 22 through 33 is overwhelming. And because of this overwhelming experience, and this is what we were just talking to Tony about, that God's going to say, that the people are going to say to God, Moses, you speak to us, and don't let God speak to us, or we're going to die. Because they're overwhelmed at um, the prospect of God speaking to them. Um, So... Look for those things. Any, uh, yes? I might have, I pray this understood. Just say, are you saying that the Ten Commandments to do the law goes back to the people they were in by the Savior Jacob, the Father's covenant did. Covenant did. I think so. Those principles apply to them. Like you see people rebuked basically for murder and adultery before the Ten Commandments. They knew about that part of the revelation of God. But but no, I, I meant to, to... A lot of times the term fathers emphasize Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Covenant was made with them. The law was revealed at Sinai. That's the New Testament too. And, but the law revealed some things that were already... Some of the things, I'm not saying all of them, that were in practice before. Now, I've got to ask you all a question. Turn this off. Um, 